see all of you. I would like to uh, start out this evening by calling out a particular group of people. Uh, how many of you guys have not yet got saved and are still using Yahoo? Anyone here? Does anyone here still have a Yahoo email address? I'd like to point out those folks. It's great to have all of you guys here. You need to repent uh, and turn to the Lord and be saved. I'm not sure why you're still using Yahoo. I will say this, though, about a Yahoo search engine. Is that little homepage on the Yahoo, like the, the little articles that they have are so insanely enticing, aren't they? Particularly when there's a list, right? Have you guys seen this? Like every other day, there's like, you know, the five ways to have a better face or the, the, the ten things never to say to your mom. or You know, there's just these weird random lists. And, and I found one of these on the Internet, on the World Wide Web here uh, a couple days ago, and it really was intriguing to me. And it was entitled, uh, Ten All Natural Ways to Stop Feeling Depressed. Now, um, if, you do, if you do any uh, Google Yahoo search uh, for, you know, how to or ten best ways to you'll find out an insane amount of lists. We as a culture are obsessed with these things. And um, just because I think it's really funny, I wanted to show you guys what these things were, okay? So just in case you're depressed tonight, this will really help. First, understand the emotional cycle. Um, now, <laughs> in the actual article, uh, and I apologize, in the actual article, they, they talk about how the, <laughs> the emotional cycle is much tied to the menstrual cycle. And... Um, Number two, uh, number two, right? Like, just spend time with positive people, right? Like, that's going to make it work. A bunch of people who fake smile and, you know, act happy all the time. Hang on with those people. The depression will go straight right away. Uh, reflect on past success. This one cracks me up. No, you don't understand. Depressed people believe there is no past success. So now you're calling them to recall things that they know aren't there, making them inherently more depressed. This is a horrible list. Focus on gratitude. I, I like number five, change of scenery. What? What? What are, we, what are we talking about? Like, just simply by going outside. Probably when, this, when the person is reading this, it's like raining and pouring outside, right? So they're like, leave their house, head outside. They're like, seriously? I feel like a Care Bear right now. Number six, um, break your routine. That's incredibly lame. And number seven, I'd like to hang out. I find it really interesting. Now, uh, I know many of you guys know uh, my, uh, that I don't have any love loss uh, for uh, pets, especially. I've told my children many times that uh, you, they will never own a pet, including a fish, small vermin. It's not going to happen. Um, but apparently, if you are depressed, what you need to do is, and I love the phrasing, interact with animals and nature, right? I'm not sure how this happens, but you're supposed to interact, right? You call out your, uh, you know, Ace Ventura animal voice and... <laughs> Pet detective it, figure it out. Uh, hungry fella, right? Number. <laughs> uh, this, is a, this is completely a commercial break. I spent my whole entire uh, freshman year of high school talking in Ace Ventura. So it's still every once in a while kind of comes out. You know what I'm saying? We're going, anyway, sorry. <laughs> uh, now, number nine, think about the big picture, uh, okay? Uh, and, and number ten, this is classic of our culture. This is classic. Do something to help yourself. Pull up, your, pull up your bootstraps, right? Figure it out on your own. Now, our culture loves these things. And, and let's just go one step further. You love these things. You, you love lists because they're simple and easy. Well, the problem is when you get to the Word of God, and even particularly our text tonight, which is incredibly, incredibly practical, almost feels like a list. It's easy to think that somehow the Bible follows the same pattern as Dr. Oz. Like, here's the five ways to do this, or here's the ten things to do this. Watch, I'm going to write it, and look, you're going to read the Bible, and you're going to see this list of things to do. Uh, the problem is, if you're just joining us tonight, it may feel that way, but if you're not joining us, you've known that we've been studying the book of Hebrews for nearly a year and a half. We're on the last chapter beginning tonight, but what's happened for 12 chapters in Hebrews is he has built 
for 12 chapters a strong doctrine and theology about the supremacy of Jesus to then get to the practical in chapter 13. You see what I'm saying? Uh, Also, we see this in Romans. 11 chapters worth of strong doctrine and strong theology and the sovereignty and power and grace and love of our Lord. And then, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, one of the most practical chapters in the Bible, Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, we don't start there. We start with all of the pieces of the character of God. Jesus did the same thing with the disciples. He didn't say, hey, fishermen, come and follow me. And here's how you tie your shoes, right? He didn't instantly give them practical ways to live. He told them who he was. We see in all four Gospels, the disciples watching Jesus instantaneously casting out a demon and speaking in the synagogue, talking about the character of God. But what happens is our culture find themselves in this perpetual pattern of seeking the list. In fact, what I would say is they get to number three. That works for a while. Reflect on past success. Oh, that's helping. Oh, my depression I see going away. And then they wake up the next morning and they find themselves depressed again. And you know what happens? They become list hoppers. They find another list that can fulfill some temporary measure in their heart to encourage them. Why? All they're doing is trying to live practical life, devoid of any truth. What we see in the Bible is a whole bunch of truth, the character of God, the power of who He is, His faithfulness, His love, His grace, and then how we're called to live in response of who He is. Are we together? The the problem is many of us grew up in context, churches, or have heard some false teaching. Where people have preached down our throat, right living, right living, right living, just like the culture, devoid of Jesus. And that, my friends, is anti-gospel. The gospel is, here is who God is. Isn't he amazing? He's unfailing. He's incredible. We can awe him. And now, because of who he is, we can look at what practical Christian living looks like. So all night tonight. Five very, very practical verses. It'll feel like a grab bag almost, kind of random. It has a very distinct purpose. And with that, I invite you guys to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. That's right. We're on the last chapter of Hebrews. Only a year and a half to go on this uh, last chapter. We'll take it really slow. About a word a week. Um, Again, for those of you that are joining us, it's great to have you here. Uh, Six verses tonight. When you guys are there, say I'm there, and we will uh, dive in. Thank you so much. Uh, For the rest of you, feel free to uh, read along uh, next year. Verse 1 says this. Let brotherly love continue. Verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Great Newsboys song. Verse 3. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and Those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage, all of a sudden marriage makes an entrance, be held in high honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for you said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, and I love this, be waiting for this all night, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me. Again, seems random. Many hodgepodge verses thrown together in practical living, practical Christian living in response to who God is. And let's begin here in verse 1 that says, let brotherly love continue. Grew up with a deep affinity against the dentistry. Anyone else? I was fearful of it. I hated it. The thought or the opportunity to have some large metal instrument placed in my mouth grinding on my teeth wasn't that pleasant. Anyone else have an acute fear of dentists and just dentistry? Well, it just so happens that one of my best friends is a dentist, and so I soon got over that. Went to the dentist for the first time in 10 years, about three months ago. That's true uh, and somewhat disgusting. However, that's the way it worked out. Um, Now, inevitably, when you're at the dentist and they begin to shoot your mouth full of Novocaine, you're waiting on the inevitable moment where all of a sudden you look down on your shirt and there's a pool of drool because you couldn't feel it protruding out of your mouth. You know what I'm saying? Everything has become numb and pretty soon there's a steady drip of saliva that has now found its way on your shirt. When we're numb, we lose all feeling. 
lose control even almost. My contention is that the Bible talks so much about brotherly love, we've just become completely numb to it. We've lost the weight of it, the feeling of it. We've read it so much, been told it, preached it, heard it, read it so much that it just, it just now we're, we're completely desensitized to it. We can't feel it. That's one extreme. The other extreme is many of you think that just by being Christians, it means we're all going to wear friendship bracelets and be, and be BFFs forever. That, that just because we have Christ as our common example, that then you're going to be best friends with every other person that's a Christian. Both extremes, I would say, are in error. Obviously, we are never to become numb to the precious grace that is the brother and sisterhood in Christ. And let's just all agree, it's a little bit eerie how incredible it really is. You're at Quick Trip having a long john because that's what I do in the morning, right? Thanks the Lord. You're talking with someone, not sure what you said, sounds like profanity. You're talking to someone. You're, you're talking to someone, right? And all of a sudden, you're, you're both leaning down to get your donut. And, and somehow, randomly, because, you know, you, whatever, I'm not even... Uh, somehow, you, God comes up, right? And you find out the brother goes to church. And, like, pretty soon, you find yourself right there in the middle of Crook Trip, which often happens to me, embracing a random Christian, you know? Like, and, and we've all had that experience, maybe not to that quite extreme. But you, you've met someone random. You find out that they're also a follower of God, and there is this instant, almost eerie moment where you feel like your long-lost brother, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's incredible. It's amazing. What it doesn't mean, though, is that, is that we instantly all have the same interests or gifts or talents or that will all the time mesh precisely. What it does mean is that there is this powerful, gracious union that is the brotherhood, that is the sisterhood, that unites all of us in love. And so the writer says, let it continue. Don't find yourself being complacent in it. I believe brotherly love should be known and shown. I believe when I'm around other believers, even if they disagree, What the one thing is that we should be revealing to the world is we can work through our issues and differences because we actually communicate. We talk. We extend grace to one another because without it, then we're saying we don't need grace from Him. It's one of our greatest opportunities to show the world who Jesus is by interacting as brothers and sisters. Problem is, we're not doing a great job representing. We're showing, actually. We're better at judgment. We're better at backbiting. We're phenomenal gossips. What we need to reclaim is brotherly love must continue. It has to continue. And so I pray if you're here and you've become numb to it, you've taken it for granted, you're not celebrated the grace and the gift that relationships are, I pray you pull back and you start telling those around you, thank you so much for following Christ that we could be connected in such a deep way. And for those of you that don't know Jesus, let me tell you this. Scripture says it's not good for man to be alone. And you will forever feel disconnected from people until the love of Christ invades your heart. And I pray it happens tonight, right? powerful verse 2 follows that up in our grab bag. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now this is strange. Not sure if this has ever happened to you. Invite some folks over for dinner. Find out about halfway through. You have uh, angels in your household. Now uh, (laughs) this may feel somewhat disconnected for you. Let me try to build some uh, context here. The writer is talking about Genesis 18, uh, where uh, the Lord and a couple angels show up at Abraham's tent. They have some interaction, and what happens is Abraham entertains these three. He makes bread for them, makes sure they're comfortable. He is hospitable to them. In my opinion, hospitality is way undersaid at a lost art. It's way worse than that. We as Christians, believers, followers of God, find ourselves not just not hospitable, but actually the opposite of it. And so I want to encourage us. Actually, this is huge in my heart. We strive, strive here at Matthias to be hospitable. It's why we love doing barbecues in the back. 
It's why we love for those of you guys that were here last year calling in the, the shaved ice people and just partying because it's hospitality. It's saying, come in, let's be a family together. So I put these things together to encourage us. I call this, next slide, those that are hospitable, let's start here with number one, love to see others sit at a better seat. In my law family, I love watching who's going to sit in the pleather chair, right? Those of you that have been in my basement, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I can't afford leather. However, I have a significant amount of pleather. And uh, there's this one particular uh, seat that's like it's the money seat. You know what I mean? Like you sit in it and you instantly feel uh, godly. You feel like this is, you know, powerful uh, stuff. The pleather kind of feels nice on the skin. And, And what hospitality is very biblically. Jesus commands his disciples at one point. He says, listen, you sit at the lowest place in the house. You let everyone else sit down before you sit. You sit where no one else wants to. Oftentimes in the staff, we'll head to, for instance, the Chinese buffet. Any fans, right? We'll go there for lunch because my man van will hold us all. We'll head there. And it's always interesting to watch because we talk about this principle a lot in our staff. And so people are arguing about who's not going to sit in the front seat. You know what I mean? So someone will be like, no, 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 I'll, I'll get in the back. No, 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 dude, seriously, you sit. Like we're, we're literally fighting about it. What eventually ends up happening is I carry all four dudes in the back of my trunk, including, including Jared, who's like six, you know, 15, right? Like hitting his head up against the thing. I'm driving. I feel like a stinking limo service for these guys, you know? But that's what Romans 12 talks about, outdoing one another in showing honor. Being so interested in the comfort of others that at any given point, you're always giving up your seat. And that works figuratively and metaphorically. Next thing I want to show you here, this is huge. You hold no sacred value to personal belongings. A hospitable person recognizes that everything they own is not theirs. That it's grace, that God has given them a gift. And so for those of you that own homes, you're not saying to yourself, no, no, you don't understand. My home is where my heart is. And you have a little country bumpkin thing painted over your bathroom, right? (laughs) Your mom has that. You know she does, right? No, no, you don't understand. My home is my sacred place. My home is what makes me happy. And this is, no, 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 you don't understand. That home is not your own. It's grace. It's been given to you by the Lord in His mercy. And so you know what? Open it up for people. There are so I'm encouraged by so many in this room that have opened their homes. I believe we have some exemplary single men and women here in our body that have opened up their homes and apartments that are very near here, right? (laughs) Revealing what true Christian hospitality looks like. But we're not just talking about homes because some of you are like, well, I have a dorm room. Same principle. Well, this is my space and these are my colors in here and people eat my pizza. It's not yours. To be hospitable is to say, look, with great wisdom, love and care, please come into my life. That's what we're called to be as followers of God, living life with people, not alone holding a remote control Or some game controller feeding off some fantasy pseudo world. We're to be living life with people. Oh, but I play video games six hours a day with people. Seriously? Sorry. (laughs) Forgive me, Lord. Number three says this. uh, Those who are hospitable need no gratitude. It's interesting, you know. Every... God-fearing, God-following thing can so quickly turn to selfishness. The line is so, so narrow, isn't it? Hey, come on over uh, to my house and it'd um, be great to have you over. And you're a stranger. I've never met you before. And, and we just embraced in QT. Why don't you come on over, right? I'll, I'll you know, make some more Long John's Forest. It'll be fun. And, and then they come over, right? And, and you're scooting the chair out for them. And you're like winking, like, see that? You know, and you like scoot it back in for them. And you're quick to give them refills, you know. And, oh, can I get you some more to drink? Oh, look, look at, man, have you noticed your cup has stayed filled all night? I mean, you're, you're just constantly pointing to your own service. The folks who are hospitable need no gratitude. No gratitude. 
They're completely content if no one ever sees them serving others. Can we just take a moment, take a breath and say, Lord, help us? Can we just take a moment and say, God, we need tremendous encouragement in this area. Serving others so that other Christians give us some merit in their mind cannot drive our love of God. It must be a pure heart that says, God, because of who you are, then I long to show love and care for others. They need no gratitude. The fourth thing is this. They know their neighbors and have invited them into their home. Again, I know many of you guys uh, don't own a home. You may uh, own vicariously through your parents a dorm room or um, you know you live in some setting. All of us have neighbors. I don't care where you live or who you are. We all have neighbors. And I'm not talking, bless you, I'm not talking about like the home improvement for those of you guys that remember that show, like talking to someone over the bushes. I'm talking about the kind of relationship with your neighbors where right now you could communicate their life story. Well, Mark, what do you mean? They're, they're, they're pagans. They don't know Jesus. How is it that I'm supposed to know their life story? Listen, hospitable people, caring, serving people are phenomenal question askers because they don't care if one question gets asked about their life. They are genuinely interested in the lives of others. And so every opportunity you have with those around you, even the randoms and grocery stores and gas stations, you're instantly prodding information from them because you really want to know who they are. Because the reality is the more you can understand the core of who they are, the more you can bless and encourage and ultimately point them to King Jesus. The problem is many of you are completely sufficient Waiting on the awkward conversation. I'm not sure how this is going to go. This isn't in my personality. We're not talking about personality. We're talking about the Word of God. It says to be hospitable to strangers, not just if you have an A personality or are outgoing. It's everyone, including everyone. Be a phenomenal question asker. Sit next to your neighbors and invite them into your personal space. And you'll see what begins to happen. All of a sudden, the barriers that you know will start to fall off. That's why I added number five here. Those that are hospitable are consistently interested in providing for the needs of others. Notice the word interested. It doesn't mean they're providing all the needs for all the others. There's wisdom to play, isn't there? There's listening to the Lord and following the direction of the Spirit. But those that are hospitable are constantly interested in serving others, putting themselves beneath others and exalting Christ by loving other people well. I sit back from this and I honestly, I think hospitality we are wretched at. So much opportunity to improve and it starts by praying that God would kill our selfishness. That he would kill this thought in our mind that all of our stuff is ours and he would make us remember, listen, we're on this earth to love and serve others and point those people to King Jesus. And that can't happen secluded, sitting in a closet, reclusing all by herself. Are we together? Right? So my prayer, even as we keep going through this, what seems like a grab bag, that God will start just to rip and expose your heart. Speaking of, let's talk about prisons, verse 3. Remember those who are in prison, seems random, as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Now, I would be amiss uh, if I didn't pause for a second and bring all of you guys into a particular conversation that has much to do with prisons. Um, five months ago, the elders, and seeing what God was doing in our midst, started to really pray what was next for us as a church. Not sure if you've noticed, God has been blessing us, really exploding the church. Last year at this time, had a couple hundred folks, and now every Wednesday, 500 are gathering here. It's crazy. And way more than that, guys, is people are getting saved and turning their lives to Jesus, and that's really what we're interested in. But we started to pray, and honestly, we did not want to add a third service. That's what the world would say to do naturally. Add a matinee at 5.30, maybe a midnight showing, like figure it out, add a third service, Right? Many of you guys will probably come to a midnight. How many of you guys would come to midnight? Okay, right. There we go. Next week, go time. Now, um, 
We didn't, we didn't have a peace about it. We we're like, no, no, we want to fight for community. We will never let any other factor dictate to us the vision of this church. God has given us a vision to love him and love people and be in strong community with each other. And so we began, we began to pray for a miracle. Now, I know many of you guys uh, know the story, but a couple months ago, I was in a property here in the city of St. Charles, 20,000 square feet, big piece of property. Then I heard how much it was. And I was like, man, I, I really like this, but... I just, I, like, we can't afford that. We got 200 folks that tithe on their allowance. I'm not sure if this is really going to work out that well for us. And uh, that's most of you, by the way. Uh, like, allowance? I'm not, oh, that's me. I can still get one. Um, anyway, and it's totally cool. Praise God, right? And uh, we just knew it would be a miracle. And don't you love things that happen where they just have to be God? It's unbelievable, man. And so... Uh, three uh, weeks ago, we offered uh, this p- on this particular property a contract to purchase it. It was asking a million. We didn't offer him nine or eight or seven. We offered him $600,000, which for a 20,000 square foot piece of property on two acres uh, is pretty much pennies. And a week later, uh, he came back with a signed contract and said, it's yours. Now, now, that's amazing and a miracle, honestly, feeling like we're at the Red Sea seeing it part. Uh, but then you still got to find a 1-800-LOAN, okay? So it, it, it's one thing to have a signed contract on a piece of property, and, but you, you still got to pay for it. Are we all together, savvy? Okay, you got money, okay. Um, so I talked to 11 banks. Ten of them laughed at me, right? Uh, ten of them are like, and what's up with the blonde spiky hair, and who are you? You are a pastor? You look like a convict. No, actually, it's very appropriate. This place is a jail, right? Um, so... Um, <coughs> The 11th bank, a long story short, uh, had some mutual friends that were bankers there. And after uh, honestly meeting with them and the three of us holding hands, praying that God would provide me and these two senior vice presidents, picture that. Three days later, last Wednesday, they called and said, hey, Mark, listen, we believe so much in what God is doing at Matthias. And, and we see that it's almost revival-like setting there. We, we want to offer you guys a loan on the piece of property. And so I stand before you tonight to humbly say this. We absolutely have loved Main Street. But guys, God has provided in a very short time a miraculous space for us to be able to stay at two services, continue to fight for community, and let God just expand us as he may. Some people have asked me, Mark, what's your growth plan? I, I don't have one. We're going to keep preaching the gospel and discipling people and living as missionaries in this city. And God will do as he may. That was the same vision when we had six people six and a half years ago. We preached the gospel, we made disciples, and we loved our city. It's the same thing now. And whatever he desires to do, then praise be to God. But what I do know is he's provided us a space. And it's brick and mortar. Who cares, right? But we're going to be able to meet there. And I know many of you guys love Main Street. I certainly do too. But it's not 100% there looking like that way, 90% or so. Uh, will be there mid-August. So I want to show you a picture. It's the old St. Charles Police Station, the old jail. We'll have a very secure kids place uh, for the children. Kind of borders the <clears throat> uh, the auditorium in this place. Will uh, just so you guys have perspective, uh, we seat 250 in here. We put many more than that in it at times, uh, much to the fire marshal's demise. Uh, this this auditorium will seat 900. Okay. It's, uh, it gives us a phenomenal opportunity to do just whatever God wants us to do. We can do dinners and stuff there too, maybe receptions, I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> I just want to give you, like, show you guys where this is at. Uh, next slide. Uh, this, this is where it's at. I know many of you guys are from Lindenwood and other universities. We're much closer, actually, to the, to the campus. Uh, you can ride your uh, BMX there now. And um, it's the little A there that's down uh, right by West Clay. Actually, I'm really excited. It puts us in phenomenal proximity to uh, El Magway, which is really, at the end of the day, what's really important to me. Um, this is a complete commercial break, and then we're going to get back on track. Uh, I'm a man, man of pattern. I eat at El Magway, and I have for the last two and a half years, every single Wednesday at 1130, okay? So I just want to let you know I'm a very loyal individual. So um, I, I bring all this to say, guys, like how ironic that a jail is going to be a church. And that a place that was known for holding people behind bars 
that now all of us in that place of brick and mortar will get to watch the captives be set free. And guys, we're just we're really humbled and excited. And like I said, by mid-August, if it all goes to plan, we'll be moving from Main Street to there. So you guys can just thank God for that, man. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. So. So uh, let's, let's go back to verse 3 now, okay? Uh, remember those who are in prison, right? Um, as though in prison with them. Now, I want to help build some context here, and then we'll get to marriage in a second. The interesting thing about prison in this culture is there were many folks being persecuted because of the gospel that found themselves in this exact situation. And so the writer is talking very specifically to a very huge cultural issue. Many believers find themselves behind bars. I feel like one of our greatest struggles relationally is out of sight, out of mind. Anyone else? If someone's not on that Facebook chat list after a while, they're not on those, the favorites, on the, they're not, te- whatever. It's so easy for people to get out of sight and out of mind. And so you're like, well, I thought this was really practical. I don't know any believers that are in prison. Is that something I'm to pray for? God, please put one of my friends in prison. Like, what am I to do? There are so many brothers and sisters around us that find themselves in circumstances, situations, things in life that has literally imprisoned them. They feel like there's no way out. They feel like they're all alone. They feel like there's no encouragement. It's our opportunity to not let them be out of sight and out of mind, but to rein them back in, to encourage them, to remember, and, and, and please remember to communicate with them that they're not alone. And so you may be, how is this practical for me? Listen, there's so many folks in my life that feel like right now they're behind the thickest bars ever and that there's no cutting it down. And we get to be that voice for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus already has cut it down. The bars are already cut. Don't put yourself back in when you're already out. Grab bag continues with verse 4. A little bit of marriage talk, shall we? Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. At least it's not heavy-hearted here in verse 4, right? Now, I know uh, many of you guys aren't married, and some of you are. Let me tell you this. Marriage is hard. Been married for 10 years. Got into it a little bit. Dated Heidi for six. Got into it a little bit, thinking that we would never argue. There would never be tension. Everything would always be awesome. We'd have kids. They would love the Lord at one month old. You know, like everything would just be perfect. Well, then you get married and you realize in the first three or four minutes that it's tough. It's tough. Right? This past Saturday, Heidi and I, I mean, I, it was like any, everything was just angering. Is that a word? Angering both of us. Like whatever she said, I was angry. Whatever uh, whatever I said, she was angry. We were just cutting each other down. And so I decided to do what all wise husbands do. I bought her an iPhone. Like, it was like 10 in the morning. <laughs> it was 10 in the morning. We were going back and forth. I was just like, all right, I'm just going to go get you an iPhone. So I, I just walked out. And, you know, and so I came back thinking like knight in shining armor. I even got her the white one. The, it's a little more girly. For those of you guys that have a white one, I'm sorry, but it's girly. And, <clears throat> and so I, you know, I like come in. Our marriage is... You know, it's been a little tough. It's been a tough day. And, you know, here I am. So I present her the, the iPhone of peace. You know, I'm like, hey, honey, I love you so much. Here's your iPhone. Well, I had done something right before I left. And so she doesn't even see the iPhone, instantly calls me out on the sin. I'm just like, I can't even win. Not even an iPhone. What kind of culture am I living in? You know what I'm saying? It was, it was horrible. I thought for sure. Right? Marriage is tough is what I'm saying. That's my point. <laughs> There's not a day that goes by, not a day, that I don't realize the gift that I have in my wife. To say that I would be worse off without her, right? I mean, my life would be horrible if I did not have her in my life. I am way, way better with her. And there is not a day that goes by that I do not understand that she for me, outside of salvation, is one of my greatest gifts. I mean, God wrapped her up so hot and beautiful, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) And said, Mark, listen, like, here is representation of my grace. Here is this amazing woman in your wife, here. 
The problem is in our culture, in our churches, in our marriages. And some of you are like, well, I'm not married now and I don't think I'll ever be married. Listen, I'd say you probably will. So please listen to this. What's happening in our culture, especially in our churches, is people are taking this gift and they're looking at God and they're saying, I don't want it right now. Oh, I'll take it back when it's convenient for me, but I'd rather sleep around. I'd rather get hooked on porn. I'd rather forget that it was grace and act like I deserve something better and that the grass is greener on the other side. And I'm going to go ahead and defile my marriage and trample on the gift and push the gift in the ground. I want to see a church that says no to adultery, that says no to pornography, that realizes the grace and the gift that marriage is. We have to stand for that. I'll tell you this, the culture's not. The culture is saying, well, I deserve this fantasy and you're not that. I deserve this picture of a woman and you had three kids and now you don't look like that anymore. No, no, no. Read your Bible again. It's the heart that makes you beautiful. Oh, that's nice. That's like saying someone has a nice personality. It's their heart. That's what makes marriage beautiful. That's why it should be held in high honor. Last thing I'll say on my rant is this. Probably last thing, right? I'm marrying a couple, uh, performing the ceremony of a couple this weekend in Matthias, all right? Trevor, Nikki, uh, soon to be Malone, many of you guys know them, awesome. I tell every couple this before I marry them. I'm like, listen, you have to understand, will I joke around a little bit? Sure, will we have some fun? Yes, but you have to understand this. I take this so serious, and every single time a bride walks down the aisle, every, never fails, I always get teary. You're like, oh, that's so sweet it's because you think the bride's beautiful. No, 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 no. You're missing it. That is the one moment every single time I do a wedding where I get to see the gospel. Revelation talks about the wedding feast of the Lamb when the bride will be wearing white. That's why brides wear white, my friends. I've told brides before. This didn't go over so well. I told brides before that said, listen, we're having sex. We're believers and we don't care. I said, then wear red. Right? Don't wear white because you're making a mockery of the thing that you're representing. I'm not saying that folks won't struggle with sexual temptation and even at times indulge, but unrepentant having sex and looking at God and flipping him the middle finger, you might as well wear a red dress because what you get to do is participate in the gospel by wearing a white dress showing the purity that's been made in you because of the bridegroom and the father walks you up and you unite just like Jesus will with the church. Are we together? That's, that's the beautiful picture of the wedding. And so every time I sit and I watch the bride walk down and I tell the couple, I'm like, the moment she walks out, yeah, you know what? It's probably the most beautiful she'll ever be. She spent a lot on it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right? Her hair's did. Her, she's got thing, colors on her face. They'll never be there again. Right? She'll be beautiful. But listen. The most beautiful thing about her is what she's representing. And you, one day, will be where she is. And the Father will walk you down and will unite you with the bridegroom. And then you'll spend an eternity in the glory of God, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so I'm just telling you this. Marriage should be held in high honor. The weightiness of it should sit on you. And so those of you that are approaching dating lacklusterly, wake up. You're taking this thing that is so sacred and thinking that one day the flip will just switch. Oh, we'll get serious when it's time. Oh, we'll stop having sex when it's time. Oh, finally, one day when we're... No, listen. Especially at the age that most of you are, you should be dating an individual that you can see as someone who God has graced you with to help you pursue him for the rest of your, uh, the rest of your days. And so for those of you that are dating lacklusterly and thinking, yeah, we'll just kind of figure it out when we get there. All right, then maybe, you know what, maybe you'll find yourself in a lackluster marriage. And then soon, guess what? Your eye starts to wander. Oh, maybe that would be better over there. Maybe this would be nice. We're taking the gift and grace of God and trampling on it. I have one more thing to say. Sorry. I don't apologize. Never mind. I retract that. Huh? I finally realized when I got to verse 4 in my studies why all of these passages are linked like this. We are called to be phenomenal stewards of God's grace. 
let brotherly love continue. I have in me the representation of God. God is in me. And so what am I supposed to do? I'm to steward that well by loving my brothers and sisters. Guess what? I'm to show hospitality. What does that mean? I'm to steward the grace that God has shown me by showing others grace too. I'm to steward the opportunity to not keep people out of sight and out of mind, but to seek them out and pursue them. And I am to steward my marriage well because it's God's grace and gift. And that's why for me, verse 5 makes sense. Because I'm like, where are all these verses coming from? Then all of a sudden we get to verse 5. Let's throw money in there while we're at it, right? Keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never uh, leave you nor forsake you. Powerful passage. Because I know many of you are like looking in your wallet. You're like, I got three bucks to my name. I don't struggle with this. Well, let me tell you this. My first job was Pondegrosa Steakhouse. Any of you guys familiar? Right? <laughs> It's an amazing establishment. I started working there when I was 14, mostly because I liked the nacho cheese. Could still bathe in it to this day. Love it, honestly. It's the nectar from heaven. Wish it was just dripping down on my face all day. That said, it doesn't matter. Like, I'm making, you know, a few bucks here, a few bucks there, waitering at Ponderosa Steakhouse. And it doesn't matter whether you got $4 or whether you got a million the moment you get a dollar in your hand, watch a kid who, you know, the Easter bunny comes, right? God forbid, and like throws some quarters in the little egg. What's the first thing they say? They don't open the egg and think, how can I serve the Lord with this, right? It's like, mom, when we go into the store, I'm going to hook something up. Well, little do they know, they ain't going to hook much up because they got a quarter, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but still, it's the heart that's in us. So I don't care whether you're a college, poor college kid or whether you're a wealthy individual here. It doesn't matter. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Why? Because it's in money that we see really what kind of steward we are. Is it yours or is it his? Do you own the stuff or has God graced you? Is it a gift or have you earned it and do you deserve it? So what does he say here? Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. That does not mean laziness. Oh, God, I'm just content. With, I haven't had a job in seven years, right? <laughs> but I'm following the scripture. I'm really content. Read the rest of the Bible. It talks very stingently against laziness and folks who sit on their hands. Be hardworking individuals. That's one of our opportunities to reveal what God has done in our life by being those who work the hardest. What he's talking about is being completely content through hard work and mostly God's grace. What he's given you instead of with the envious eye looking out of the corners and saying, well, that person has this and this person has that. I wish that was mine. Listen, all of you guys show where your heart is by how you use your dollars. And I really want to challenge this particular segment of people. You think, well, well, one day when I'm a responsible adult, I'll learn that. Many of us are there already. Listen, it never gets easier. Learn it now. And when I say learn it, learn to hold your wallet in your hand and release the grip. It's not your green. It's not your money. Steward it extremely well and shrewdly and wisely and be extremely generous. Right? Many of you guys have, have gone out to lunch with me, and one of my deals is I just, I just and man, I'm, I don't got a lot of money, man, you know? But one of the things for me is I just don't ever let people pay. And all of you guys are like, hey, can we go out for lunch tomorrow? Like, what? <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese? Like, what, you know? It'll be a party. Um, I just, I, I really try as best I can to embrace, like, God, you've blessed me with it, and, and I just want people to know, like, when... When we're hanging together, they, they just don't have to worry about it. It's constantly balancing that, guys, but this is not your own. Now, five verses, five verses. Without verse six, maybe we have another cultural list. But with it, check this out. So we can confidently say just how it ended in verse five. I'll never leave you or forsake you. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Put up my list again that I showed at the beginning. Look at number 10. Our culture 
has that as their mantra. Do something to help yourself. Figure it out. Get motivated. Surely this diet will work this time. You don't have to be depressed anymore. You can be happy. Do something to help yourself. My Bible reads, verse 6, quoting a Psalm 118.6, back to verse 6, the Lord is my helper. I don't need to help myself. The Lord's already helping me. Culture hops from list to list. And they realize that they will spend their entire life perpetually trying to fulfill the list. But believers get to this point where you realize, you know what? It's really, really tough to be wise with your finances, isn't it? Any of you who are married, you know it is really, really tough to keep your marriage pure and focused and godly. You know it's really, really, really tough to serve people and consistently be hospitable. It's incredibly, insanely tough to consistently love the brothers and the sisters. But look at what the Bible does. It reminds you at your moment of possible despair and feeling like just another moral Christian list, the Lord is your helper. Listen, yeah, all these things are tough. Christ says, come and follow me, live like me, not because morality will get you anything, but because of who I am. And so Hebrews has built 12 chapters worth of doctrine and, and, and the supremacy of Jesus to now say, look, here's what good Christian response living looks like, but guess what? All the while, he's helping you do it. Hospitality, he'll help you. Your marriage, he's your helper. Your financial issues, that's on him too. Isn't it unbelievable almost? The fact that all the things the Lord calls us to do, he also says, I'm going to help you do them. <laughs> You're never alone. You're never out there by yourself trying to pull up your bootstraps and go for it another day. I am your helper. And so I got this to say. Any opportunity that you ever have in your life to begin to live morally and think that that earns you anything in the heavenly perspective or acceptance in the eyes of God, you need to remember this. That the beauty of the gospel is the power of the character of God and then his people living in response because of who he is. And then in their moment of feeling like they're incapable of following him, he says, watch me help you do it. And then in that moment, at that point, it can only be God. And that's why scripture says, so no man may boast. And so we all find ourselves following God joyfully because he's empowering us to do it. What a God. What a God that wouldn't just allow us to be list hoppers but that would call us to something because of who he is. Let's stand together, okay? So I feel like our biggest struggle is asking for help like men who won't ask for direction, right? <laughs> what does it look like tonight for all of us? To have such an understanding of our need that all we do right now is just say, God, help us. God, help us. I understand how amazing your character is, and I want to live for you like many of your desires are. But you're trying to do it just like everyone else in the culture. What does it look like tonight just to cry out for his help? Say, God, I'm tired of living financially irresponsible. I just need your help, God. I'll never leave you or forsake you. For those of your marriages in here that are struggling or those that are in relationships that are nowhere near preparation for marriage. What does it look like tonight to cry out for help? And I'm going to promise you this. You cry out for help 
It's the cry that God cannot deny. The merciful father turns his head to the voices of his sheep. And the scripture says his sheep know him and he knows them. So I'm just going to encourage us in a moment of response tonight. For all of us in your own way, silently, out loud. Let's just take a second together just to pray for help. All right? Let's pray that in your own way. Come on. God, we stand here as your children, broken, in great need. And God, I pray right now that you would stir our affections for you. That we could sense how near your help is. That we would know, God, how strong your mighty arm is. That we would know, God, that we can trust in you and in no man. That we would believe, God, that we can find refuge and shelter in who you are. That no man or culture will ever provide. God, we stand before your throne right now pleading for help. Saying, God, without you we're nothing. Every situation in our life demands your help. Your guidance, your love, and your grace. God, please overwhelm us, Lord. I pray, God, that we feel emboldened. That, God, you would encourage us to live in response to who you are. Thank you for your truth. That we don't have to be list hoppers. That we can rest in your word. God, please, please, Lord Jesus, have your way with our life, God.